0: Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes, and sometimes things other than beer, like today. So it's more brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. For
1: the time being, at
0: least. Mm -hmm. Well, on this episode, as we said, we're going to tackle something other than beer. Now, normally that's a nice short segment at the end of uh, the main show, but this time it's going to be a full show because we're going to talk about what is really actually america's foundational beverage cider why don't you sit back get ready to hear all about the apple and let's make some magic from the orchard
1: but
0: first a message from our sponsors
1: getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Air Still Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Air Still Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube.
0: Welcome back, everybody. Like we said, uh, this episode is going to be all about cider because, you know, it's that time of year. In most places in the country, it's fall temperatures. I live in L.A. It's not fall temperatures.
1: Yeah, I live up in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, we have just gone from L.A. type temperatures to our normal fall temperatures. And uh, the apple crop is coming around. It's going to be ready in another month or so.
0: That seems like it's absolutely the perfect time to talk about cider because you're going to need some prep work. Get everything in position if you don't already have trees like some of us here on this podcast do, you're gonna to need to find a local orchard and you know really get ready. But here's the good news. If you have access to fresh juice, making cider's a walk in the park, at least compared to brewing. So why don't we get into it? Denny, how much cider have you made?
1: I have made, I've been making cider for pretty close to all the 20 years I've been brewing because we have uh, apple trees here on our property. And uh, originally I would borrow a press from uh, my neighbors and eventually we ended up getting one of our own. We make a batch of cider, at least one, just about every year and sometimes multiple batches. So, you know, I've made maybe like 30, 40 patches.
0: Yeah, and I don't have an orchard, but I have access to a lot of really great apple juice around here, both fresh pressed and stuff that's brought in from other parts. So we have some differing perspectives here. And hey, at least one of us wrote a book on making cider.
1: <laughs> yeah, but the other one may know more.
0: Uh-huh. So with that in mind, let's uh, just talk real quick. I will warn everybody that, you know, like I said, we have some differing uh, points of view here. I've come at this very much from the point of view of an American home brewer. If you talk to actual proper cider makers or vintners, they kind of tend to look down on home brewers making cider because we do have a different take. If you listen to the Brew Files episode with Dave, where we talked about winemaking, you know that there's a, a whole different thing. And really, first, let's lay out the basics. Cider is a fruit wine. I mean, we are making wine when we make cider. It just happens to be an apple wine. I mean, wine is fruit wine too, right? Grapes are fruit. Well, yeah, but, you know, people think wine, grapes. It's a fruit wine. That's what cider is. The big thing is, I don't think most of us have ever actually tasted proper cider because really for the most part cider these days is almost exclusively associated with uh britain and ireland uh, they are the world's largest consumers of cider and yes there are cider cu- cultures outside of that so hold off on the emails Yeah, you, know, you got the uh, france and and the bass and i mean just about everybody you know apple wine from germany there's lots of cider traditions out there but really cider in a large way is associated with the uk these days we are going to take a very american tack on it and if you've haven't been paying attention, you may not have realized that cider has uh, suddenly become very vogue here in the U.S. in the last couple of years. And I remember uh, all the way back when I was in college in Boston, and so that would have been like 92, 96, reading stories in the New York Times about how cider was going to be the next big thing. Cider finally is the next big thing. We have
1: a great cidery here in Eugene called Wildcraft that uh, makes some just... Excellent and creative ciders, all very dry, uh, none of that sweetened crap like you uh, see in a lot of the commercial uh, mass-produced ciders that are out there. And let me tell you, these guys are immensely popular. Cider is a happening beverage.
0: Real quick, the reason why that that seems to be happening is as much as fun as we tend to make of some food trends and whatnot. The fact that people are actually paying more attention to food allergies and there's been a rise in the interest in gluten free lifestyles has actually really done a big number to fuel the growth of cider in, in the U.S. When I was growing up, and I think really until relatively recently. As Danny alluded to, almost all the cider that you could find here in the U.S. was this mass-marketed, sweetened, weird, not-so-wonderful stuff. When I was in college, the, the highlight was going to be able to find a uh, Woodchuck. Uh, nowadays, Woodchuck is <laughs> not exactly a well-respected brand. It's owned by, uh, I think, CNC Cider out of Ireland, which also owns a whole bunch of other uh, cider manufacturers. Good news is, for you out there... Cider is incredibly easy to make, but at the same time, it's also incredibly hard to get it to be great. And we're going to try and walk you through how to do that. First, a little history. The Apple itself... It comes from uh, Kakistan. The biggest uh, gift that Kakistan has given to the world through them and China. So, for those
1: of us who are geography impaired,
0: where is Kakistan? Just outside of China, is kind of sandwiched between China and Russia. Oh, okay. Yeah, near Mongolia and all that area, all that sort of area. So, right. uh, but yeah, the, literally is the birthplace of apples, like Armenia is the birthplace of wine grapes. Uh, apples, all the apples that are around the world uh, come from that area. And uh, there's a great variety of apples because apples, as it turned out, drift relatively quickly so all those varieties that you find in the the store those are all clones so clonal architecture is what what makes the sort of species of apples that we have nowadays possible but apples in the wild are vastly different and sort of crazy and almost none of them are going to be the sort of apples that you want to go stick in your face and go chomp on if you go and actually find wild apples they are gnarly they may have some sugar, they may have a fair amount of sugar in them, but they're bitter, they're acidic, they're mouth puckering. They're the kind of thing that you're just, no, you don't want to eat those. And so, humanity, in the interest of finding calories and the way to use available foodstuffs, took these wild apples and figured out that they can make cider out of them, you know, make fermented juice. And it turns out that's very easy because ciders, well, apple juice wants to become cider, it wants to ferment like most sugary liquids. You know, we joke about barley wants to become beer, apples want to become cider. And as a point of order, let's make, let's make sure one thing that we are going to say uh, here again. If you ever hear us use the word cider, please know that here in both the U.S. and Canada, that word is very confusing because cider to most Americans means, you know, unfiltered fresh pressed juice. To almost everywhere else in the world, cider means fermented apple juice. Uh, why did that happen? Uh, blame the prohibitionists. It's one of my favorite sports to do. We can blame them for a lot of stuff. I know. It's one of my favorite sports. <laughs> but American history is tied up very largely with uh, cider and apples. Remember, early colonists, they did not have the ingredients for making good beer. So that's the reason why you see a lot of early colonial recipes for beer involving pumpkins and acorns and anything that they had on hand. Molasses out the ga- by the gallon. Cider was incredibly popular in the U.S. Cider remained incredibly popular in the U.S. until the late 1800s, and it was killed during Prohibition because, well, the Prohibitionists basically targeted all those apple orchards that grew apples that were bad for eating, but wonderful for cider making. And they bulldozed hundreds of thousands of acres of cider trees. Uh, All those apple trees that you've always remembered the stories of Johnny Appleseed planting, those weren't eating apples. They were cider apples. And he only planted those so that people would be able to actually go buy the apple trees from his brother – and turn around and plant them on their new farmsteads and that would count as improvement that would give them legal title to the farmland. So Johnny Appleseed, you know, may have spread the apple, but he spread it for profit motives.
1: Well, well why not?
0: All right. So that's a quick little piece of history, and like we said, cider kind of died out here in the U.S. with prohibition, and then the word cider itself became corrupted and unfiltered apple juice, and so now here in the U.S. you'll hear people talk about cider versus hard cider. Really, in the rest of the world, there is no such distinction. Cider is hard cider. So if you hear us say cider, we mean Hard Cider. Let's talk about the, the the usual story, because there are a lot of great books out there about cider making. Yeah, Annie Prolix wrote a really great one. I think in the last 10 years, there's been a flight of really good books out there that have come out, including one by Drew Beecham.
1: <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to get around to that.
0: Yeah, go buy the Everything Hard Cider book. It's a more in-depth version of what we're talking about here today. That's right. So the usual story of cider making is, to make the best cider, you first must start with the appropriate apples. And in order to find the most appropriate apples, Well, you can't go and buy them at the grocery store. So in order to find the most appropriate apples, you have to go grow your own apples. I don't know about you, and not you, Denny, but I don't know about you, (laughs) dear listener. (laughs) I do not assume that you are an arborist or an orchardist or a farmer with your own set of trees. If you are, congratulations, you're about 50 steps ahead of the game. Denny, how many trees do you have? Uh,
1: I would say that we have maybe like, eight to ten trees spread around our property, Uh, although one of them has been grafted, so there are actually three varieties of apples on it. None of them are the official cider apples. Uh, My one encounter with cider apples, they were like these little shriveled black things about the size of a golf ball. They were so tannic and bitter that you'd get blisters on your mouth if you bit into one. The trees that we have here were planted by the former residents of this place we bought. It's just kind of like. Like eating apples Uh, but we found that you can make really good cider with them uh, if you use a a variety not just one strain although we do have one crab apple tree and that making the the cider strictly from those crab apples makes amazing cider and it has this cool pinkish hue to it also
0: let's talk a little bit about apple stories because the apples themselves are kind of spread into a couple different categories so we have what we think of as the culinary apples those are the ones that you go to your grocery store and outside the occasional crab apple those are the ones that you can find you know your Fujis, your romes your granny smiths your you know jazz apples your honey crisp your whatever the university of michigan's releasing this year new these are all culinary apples now the big thing about culinary apples is that they are high in sugar and they are also high in acid. Uh, And the reason for that is because acid is something that gives tang, right? And we like that tang. That's the culinary apple. But in reality, in order to make a great cider, you have to balance a couple of different aspects. You have to balance sweetness, acidity, and what you'll hear referred to as bitterness, which as beer drinkers, we would kind of think of bitterness as being like an IBU, but bitterness in the cider world actually refers to the tannin level. So as Denny alluded to, cider apples, proper cider apples, are these weird little hard things that are hard high in sugar and usually far higher in tannin than any of our apples that you're used to eating. The real trick for making an cider if you're going to start with your own apples is to actually balance out those three flavors. And you do that with a lot of culinary apples mixed with, you know, so so you hear people talk about uh, apples in a couple different categories, you'll hear them talk about sweet, bitter, sharp, and bitter sharp. That literally tells you, okay, is this a high sugar apple? Is this a high acid apple? Is this a high tannin apple or some combination thereof? And so really when you're going to make your your own cider from your own apples, you're balancing that out. But as we said, almost none of us have access to that sort of blend of apples. Most of us are not going to have the ability to have our own press. Yeah, most of us are going to have to get our juices from other sources. But before we get there, Denny, why don't you talk about the actual juicing process? Okay,
1: I use a uh, cider press made by a guy named uh, Bob Carell. He lives uh, real close to me here, makes these cider presses that are just absolute works of art and it turns out that there are beer competitions there are also competitions for cider presses and these Corel presses win awards year after year because of the throughput. Basically what it is is there's a on one end there's a hopper with a, a rotating drum that has some knives on it, and you drop the apples into the hopper, the uh, knives kind of like grind them up, and they go down through uh, the the grinder into a uh, wooden slat kind of uh, bucket that has a uh, oh almost like a cheesecloth mesh in it. Once that bucket is full, you fold the cheesecloth over the top, put on this hard lid, slide it down to the other end of the press where there's a screw-type device with a large handle on it that you screw down into the apples, and you press the juice out of them. Pretty simple, pretty effective. uh, Actually, we'll put a link to uh, the Corel Cider Presses on the website so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. It's easier to visualize if you see it, but it's Pretty easy to do, and at least with, with my press and the apples I generally use, um, one pressing gives me any place from half a gallon to a gallon of
0: juice. For how many pounds of apples?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a darn good question uh, because I don't actually weigh them. So I, I can't tell you. I, I, I will tell you that if we have a wet year... And then a freeze before I make the cider, I get more juice out of the apples because the additional rainfall puts more moisture into them, and the freeze before pressing uh, breaks down the cell structure so that I get a lot more juice out of them. Right.
0: And so we should actually take a step back, real quick, and describe you know the basic process here is you have to crush the apples, you know, basically right. chop them up into tiny little pieces. You get those into some sort of filter media, you know, like in Denny's case, you said bags. A lot of times, if you're With a big press, those go into multiple bags and they form what are called cheeses. And those cheeses are layered with some sort of separator, like either a platform or hay in the old days. And then you press that and get the juice out. Right. And the idea is that you're really just trying to squeeze all the juice out of there. And if you're fancy, you'd have this like in a hydraulic press. But we're not fancy. And I've seen uh, some really great plans online for people who are making well, some some cider presses that are works of art, like the Corel. Or I've seen some of them where you know what, screw fancy uh, fanciness. We're we're going old school hillbilly, only with a modern twinge. And what they've done is mounted a garbage disposal into a plastic utility (laughs) sink. And instead of (laughs) instead of sending the the output of the garbage disposal down to the drain, the output of the garbage disposal goes into a bag that you can then press. So (laughs) there you go.
1: I've you know I've I've seen those, and you have to admire the ingenuity. But I don't know how well they
0: actually work. Actually, yeah, they work surprisingly well. So, I mean, because again, all you're really trying to do is chop everything up and then get into a position where you can press it. Now, if you don't have your own press and you don't feel like investing in them, because uh, Denny, how much was your Corel?
1: It was about seven or eight hundred bucks, man. You, know, you can, you can buy a lot of cider for uh, what the, the press costs, mm-hmm. but that's, that's not the point. Yep. You know, it was a, it was, it was a birthday present for my wife. She asked for it and so she got it.
0: Yeah. You, know, you can, you can jerry rig something up a little, uh, for relatively little money, but let's say you don't have that. You don't have the room and you just want to kind of do this on a small scale. If you have a juicer. Yeah, you know, like the old fashioned, you know, Mr. Juice Man juicer. You can use those. You're, you're going to want to let them settle out a little bit more because you're going to get a lot of fiber and whatnot in there because it's kind of the point of those things. But you can use a regular juicer and go and juice apples that you find and produce small batches of juice that way. I would not recommend doing that with a large run of everything because motors overheat. Yeah. That's what you can do if you have apples. You know, And of course, obviously, you want to go and try and find a blend of good apples, right? You know, so Denny, you said you have eight trees to, to choose from.
1: There's a blend of uh, apples that are kind of like sweet, meant for just eating out of hand. There are apples out there that are a lot more tart and uh, kind of meant for cooking. There's the crab apple tree. Uh, there's varieties that I'm not even quite sure what they are. So for us, it was kind of like uh, a case of opportunity. Rather than having perfect cider apples, we decided we'd see what kind of apples we could make out of our own Trees, you know.
0: Yeah, well, and truthfully, that's how it really works for the majority of the world. And I will say, those crab apples are actually a key because crab apples provide a lot of sharpness and a lot of tannin, and a lot of uh, bitterness. Right. So if you have you know nothing else but a bunch of culinary apples, a little bit of crab apple goes a long way. And to Danny's point, you know, crabapples themselves do also make really good ciders. There's, uh, what was it Wandering Angus?
1: Yeah, right. They make they make very great ciders, and they grow uh, they grow all their own apples. Uh, the cidery I mentioned earlier, Wildcraft, does not grow apples, but they also make amazing ciders. And I I don't mean to limit it to those two, because uh, like Drew said, cider has been really, really. Coming on as a popular beverage, and there are more than a few cider makers around here. Oh,
0: yeah. well, one of my favorite old school ones is back on the East Coast. Uh, and I say old school, started in the 90s when I was there. Uh, it's called Farnham Hill Cidery from uh, Poverty Lane Orchards. Wonderful ciders. Wandering Angus has a crab apple cider that they make uh, called, um, let me see, it's uh, the Wixon uh, Wix crab apple varietal. And it's a stronger cider, only made with Wixon crab apples. I call that the IPA of ciders because it's bitter and absolutely bracing and wonderful. So if you can find that, you can do that. But the key is crab apples are wonderful. So now let's say you're not like Denny and have your own trees and you're not crazy enough to go out and buy 500 pounds of apples and want to press your own juice. Well, it turns out most of us don't live that far away from press your own orchards. Now, if you were normally to go to one of these orchards without telling them who you are, you just show up and buy juice. They'll sell you some perfectly wonderful juice, but it's going to be catered towards the usual sort of sweet taste. And it's also going to be usually pasteurized in some variety, you know, either flash pasteurized or UV pasteurized. They're going to do something to reach in there and kill off all the microbes and the yeast that live on those apples. As cider makers, we don't want that. We want all the good stuff. We want all the weird stuff. And so what I find is if you have a orchard nearby you and it is harvest season, one of the best things that you can do is because every orchard out there has weird trees that they don't know what to do with. Call them up ahead of time. And say, hey, look, I want to make some hard cider, just so that you don't confuse people. I want to make some hard cider. Can you juice for me whatever it is that you have that's weird and put it together? And, hey, can you not pasteurize it? If you develop a a good relationship with these orchards, they'll do this for you. You They might want to charge you a little bit extra. They might not. And you get jugs of free juice with a lot of different characters to them that are unpasteurized. And this is key because here's one of the things we as brewers tend to be obsessed with the idea of making sure that we have all of our beers pitched with, you know, these monocultures of use so that we have everything good and clean. I don't want that in my starter. So we'll talk about that in a second, but here, here's what you do. You get the fresh juice, avoid the pasteurized juice, because also you don't want to have heated juice because of pectin haze. Now, if you read a lot of instructions out there, people will talk about adding a couple different chemicals to the cider when they first get the juice, and they'll add uh, pectinase, which is an enzyme that is designed to break down pectin. If you don't know what pectin is, pectin is a polymer that basically sets and turns things into jelly in the presence of enough acid and sugar. So if you want to make apple jelly, you need pectin. If you want to make nice, clear cider, you don't need pectin. and You don't want it. So pectinase is designed to go in there and kind of chop up any of the the pectin and prevent it from setting. I don't typically find I have that problem as long as I'm not using pasteurized juice.
1: Yeah, if you don't heat the juice, you're not going to have trouble with pectin.
0: So don't heat your juice. No pectin. If you have flash pasteurized juice, if you have heated juice, use pectinase, but make sure you use it before the fermentation starts because it's better to let it actually you know get get its business done uh, not in the presence of ethanol because ethanol actually interferes with it. The other one that you also see people talk a lot about, and this is because I believe cider makers have a lot of a lot in connection with winemakers. Again, a lot of people will dose their cider juice with sulfite. Potassium metabisulfite, sodium metabisulfite, sometimes, or what we might also think of as Campton tablets, and the reason for that is what they're doing is they're following what winemakers do. You add metabisulfite to a wine must to stun all of the wild yeast and bacteria and anything else that's in the in the juice, so that you can then wait 24 hours, let that take effect, hit it with a bunch of fresh yeast. And let that yeast take over, right? You know, it's the same thing that we always talk about in homebrewing where, you know, we aren't operating in perfectly sanitary conditions, but what we're trying to do is generate clean enough environment that our saccharomyces can take over well ahead of anything else and drop the pH and raise the alcohol levels so that it's inhospitable to spoilage mechanisms. Well, that's what they're trying to do with the sulfite. I don't like sulfite. I'm asthmatic. And so if anything has a fair dose of sulfites in it, I can usually tell and I feel it in my lungs. I start to get a little bit of a minor asthma attack. I don't do sulfites. I just... Depend on using my beer sanitizing chemicals to sanitize my carboys and go from there. What about you, Danny?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I don't know if you've done it both ways, but I have. I've used sulfites uh, and then I haven't used sulfites. I couldn't tell that there was any difference. So, uh, on the theory that if it doesn't make any difference, you don't need it, I no longer use sulfites and I haven't for quite a while never had a problem from doing that so that's my theory
0: you know that's if you're if you're wanting to be perfectly clean and clear you know do that if you have pasteurized juice you don't have to worry about it if you're going to go into a carboy and hit it with a lot of yeast you don't really have to worry what i like to do is i like to take my unpasteurized juice put it into a sanitized carboy put an airlock on it and let it sit for 24 to 48 hours and the reason for that is i want a little bit of funk in my ciders straight fermented apple juice is usually relatively boring I like a little bit of earthiness, a little bit of funky characters to come into my cider. And the best way to do that is to let sit for 24 to 48 hours if the juice is unpasteurized and let the wild yeast and microbes that are coming in from the orchard actually start to do some business.
1: I've done ciders completely with just the wild yeast on them. Uh, you know, not pitching any yeast at all. But my track record is about uh, one out of five, I think. Uh, I've ended up with cider vinegar more often than not. If you want to get some of that character to it, then limit the amount of time that it wild ferments and then pitch your own yeast.
0: Yeah, and I know if you go to like the UK, you know, you'll know, you see a lot of naturally fermented ciders and whatnot. And some of those are as complex as lambics. but I'm not always after that. So I find the best blend is to go... 24, maybe 72 hours at the outside most with unpasteurized juice in a carboy, let magic happen, and then hit it with a ton of yeast. And I tend to just basically go dry ale yeast. I know some people like to try and use wine yeast or they use a a liquid liquid cider yeast. I've never found any great value in it. So I just use a nice dried English ale yeast or even USO5.
1: I've experimented with a bunch of different yeasts. Uh, Most of them dry, but not exclusively. Uh, The first one I tried was the good old EC eleven eighteen wine yeast that uh, you see many people using. Uh, I added some sugar to that. I think I even added a little bit of lemon juice for a little tartness, and it ended up with a uh, cider that was very, very much like champagne, super dry. Uh, I have experimented with using like a. Dry Belgian yeast, T58, didn't seem to leave any Belgian character whatsoever. I've tried a bunch of different dry ale yeasts like the USO5, SO4, Pretty much same results with all of those. You couldn't really tell one from another.
0: And I think the problem is that, you know, really a lot of those esters and phenols that we expect to get out of our yeast, those are all dependent upon the metabol- uh, metabolic pathways that the yeast is following during fermentation. And that's going to be triggered by the presence of different chemicals. And grape must and cider must don't really have a lot of those chemicals.
1: Yeah, right. Well, they're very they're very different from, uh, from beer wort for sure. So probably one of my most successful tries on making cider was uh, just last year when uh, we had been to my neighbor's place. They have a big cider pressing there every year that we attend. Uh, It's an interesting kind of uh, event because... People bring apples, they bring grapes, they bring pears, and they all kind of go into the press and all get pressed together. Brought home some of that juice, decided we wanted to make cider out of it. I looked around. The only thing I had on hand was a slurry of uh, Y-East 1450. Hmm. I figure, why would I have that around? Uh I tossed that into the juice, and uh, a month later when we tried it, my wife and I looked at each other and went... You know, this is this is probably the best cider we've ever made. It had a touch of body to it, even though it had fermented out fully. kept retained a really, really nice appley flavor to it, and so you know, he we thought, well. the only thing we did differently this time uh, is that yeast. So we thought we would have to try it again to see if that was really what did it. So we picked some of our apples, pressed a couple more batches of juice, made a couple more batches of cider with a 1450, And sure enough, that was what seemed to make the difference in them, because they all turned out having that same kind of character to it. So, you know, there's another reason it's Denny's favorite.
0: Oh, Denny's favorite. Is there anything you can't do?
1: (laughs) I don't know, man. I'm beginning to think maybe not.
0: Uh, Next up, can it make vodka? (laughs) Yeah. Now, we did touch upon the must. Basically, any sort of fruit juice that you're going to ferment is called a must, like we called... Uh, work, work. must is incredibly nutrient-poor. Yeast need nutrients in order to do their thing, at least if you want them to do it to completion, just like you would with wine or with mead. we, I, At least I find that there's a big advantage to adding yeast nutrient to your cider. I think that you get a healthier and cleaner ferment, and I think there's actually some value to it. But I also tend to follow the same sort of profile that I do for meads, which is I do the staggered nutrient additions as I learned from Ken Schramm. And that literally is basically, you know, take your usual yeast dose or yeast nutrient dose that you would use for a full batch, divide it by eight, and just add a eighth every 12 hours for the first day, four days of fermentation. I find that actually helps a lot.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I use nutrient also, and I think it's it's pretty darn important because there may not be a lot of nutrients in the apple juice. But I just throw it all in at the beginning. Um because I didn't know any better and it works. So
0: <laughs> that's my theory. The staggered nutrient addition helps you and be able to turn it around faster, is the primary advantage. Regardless, nutrient is a must in your must. <laughs> So there there's the other question about whether or not you capitalize your must or not, and uh, capitalization is just a fancy term for, do you add extra sugar? So if you add extra sugar, then congratulations, you'll get a stronger product. If you ever look out there, you'll notice that almost all the ciders that are sold here in the U.S. seem to magically stop around 6.9% alcohol. And that's because 69 uh, to 7% alcohol is is the cutoff to become an apple wine, which is has a higher taxation rate over cider. So mysteriously a lot of our American cider producers seem to stop at 6.9. <laughs> if you want a stronger if you want a stronger apple cider, you can add uh sugar. Yeah, you know, most people just add plain white sugar. Sometimes you can add some uh, funny sugars or some different flavors, like with muscovado or uh, demerara. You know, get some of those molasses characters in there. But really, almost any sugar would do. Don't you don't have to boil it or anything. You just have to get it into the juice.
1: Yeah, keep in mind though that adding sugar is going to reduce the apple flavor that you get out of your cider. That may be what you want. So just, you know, just remember to account for that. Again, I've done this both ways. My first few batches of cider, I added sugar to it because that kind of seemed the thing to do. I stopped doing that a long time ago. Number one, because I don't really care if it's stronger or not. Uh, The gravity of my juice after I press it usually ends up in the 1045 to 52 range, which means I'm going to get, you know, a 5.5 to 6% cider. That's plenty strong enough for me and I also don't like the fact that it dilutes the flavor Uh, my first few batches were very much like champagne and that was cool, my my sister who's a champagne lover dug it but uh, you know, I I prefer to have something that's going to remind me a lot more of the apples that that the cider came from so I have kind of stopped adding sugar to mine.
0: But now we have to go on to something that I do feel is important I don't know how you feel about it, but we don't tend to talk a lot in beer about, you know, sort of how you adjust the flavor post, post-fermentation, you know, because usually we think, okay, that's it. And most we probably do is add some dry hops. In cider making and winemaking in general, you absolutely have to pay attention to your acid and your tannin levels. So remember that we talked about that, you know, you have sharp and bitter and sweet. Well, most of the apple juice that we're going to be able to get is going to be very focused on the sweet and the acidic because those are very prominent flavors when you're just having something to eat but not so much on the bitter angle. So what I find is a little bit of addition of powdered grape tannin or liquid grape tannin, if you can get your hands on it, which you can find in almost any store that does winemaking supplies, a little addition of that. And I'm talking eighth of a teaspoon can make a huge difference in the mouth feel of your cider. It can take something that kind of tastes vaguely like acidic apple water and suddenly boost this character and make sort of a golden apple character come out for a product that actually is very, very bitter. At the same time, acid, whether it be malic acid or an an acid blend or even citric acid mixed into the cider, can take a cider that seems kind of flabby or weak and kind of just lays flat on the palate and brighten it up because our brains associate acidity with freshness. What I really suggest that you do is after you get your cider fermented, you take some of it into into a pint glass, add small amounts of tannin and acid to it to see how that how that changes the profile. One of the things I love to do to teach people about this is I will take a RA fermented cider. I'll take a commercial cider out there. Something kind of insipid, right? Something without a, a great deal of character to it. I will pour that into glasses and I will doctor each of them. I will leave one plain. I will have one that I add a bunch of acid to and the other one that I add a bunch of tannin to. And I'll let people taste those. And when you taste it, suddenly your brain starts to understand what that impact is. So to my mind, if we're just talking about the kind of the salt and pepper of the cider world, it's tannin and acid. Don't be afraid of doing post fermentation adjustments with this stuff. I find the max to be absolutely critical to deliver the maximum flavor that you can get out of your cider.
1: Yeah. And you know, and those acids and tannins are the two things I go back and forth on uh, with every batch of cider. Sometimes I use them. Sometimes I don't.
0: Well, sometimes it's going to depend. On, it's always going to depend upon your crop.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, what I do is I taste the juice after it's pressed and kind of try and make an educated guess about if uh, tannin and acid are going to be necessary. And more often than not, I decide not to. But every once in a while, I do. Sometimes when I don't, I wish I would have and actually add it late like you were talking about doing. So, I would say definitely don't discount those two things. If you're making cider, do some experimenting with them. See what you think.
0: Yeah, and I think, again, for you, you have the advantage of having crab apples at hand. You know, and those are going to add a lot of tannin.
1: Yeah, but they don't go into every batch, you know. Um, there are some batches that are, that are made without them. So, there, there is no grand plan for cider making here. It's like uh, uh, we pick the apples, we press the apples, and... Put yeast in and some of the other stuff and see what happens.
0: Well, and then obviously you'll also see, you know, for people who don't necessarily have a homebrew shop on hand. And if you read a lot of like old British cider making uh, text, they'll tell you to add lemon juice or they'll tell you to make a really strong cup of black tea and add that to your cider. And those are, again, acid and tannin. So you'll see those sorts of adjustments as well. But I really do recommend that you use either a powdered acid or a powdered tannin, because I think those get the flavors and the impact in cleaner without carrying in additional flavors if that's what you're wanting. That's cider fermentation or the the whole cider process really, because I mean you've got fermentation down cold. You know, keep it keep it chill. Give it a nice ale yeast. don't let it don't let it run too far amok, don't let it get too hot. Let it sit for I find with the, the nutrient additions, I can turn a cider around in about a month. Uh, when i did it without the nutrient additions it would take me a little bit longer but you know you, you got that you got it into packaging so or you're ready for packaging now the big challenge for most uh, for most cider makers at home is balancing two things i want a cider that's sweet and i want it to be sparkling this is a huge challenge for most cider makers unless you're a kegger because here's the problem let's say you're bottling your cider So you want sweetness. Well, remember, your your yeast have already eaten all the sugar in the juice. So you go, you add sugar to the juice. You go put that in a bottle. What happens? It referments in the bottle and possibly explodes. So you have a couple of different choices that you can make there. If you're in that sort of situation, none of them are fantastic. Bottle with sugar, let it carbonate uh, just a little bit and then keep the bottles cold and still be prepared to have uh, explosive bottles when you open the, the other one that you'll see people do is bottle, light carbonate, and then carefully pasteurize the bottles. And they'll set up a water bath, they'll heat it up to like 170, and they'll stick, they'll stick fully carbonated bottles of cider into the water pot, let them soak to kill off the yeast, and hopefully keep everything safe. I don't have to mention, that's kind of dangerous. So if you do that, be careful, put a lid on your pot, and listen very carefully.
1: Really? You know, and going back to something you said a minute ago, I don't know where the idea came about that if you keep something cold, it won't ferment any further.
0: Well, I mean, it will certainly slow it down, but...
1: It'll slow it down, sure. But, you know, the idea of sweetening cider and then keeping the bottles in the fridge to uh, prevent them from exploding, the only thing that's going to happen is that someday down the road, you're going to hear a loud noise, open up your fridge, and find pieces of glass embedded in the inside. Well,
0: just drink quick. Or the other thing that you can do is, I see people do this all the time, is repurpose soda bottles and use those, because then at least you're safe uh, from exploding glass. Just a mess.
1: Or sweeten it in your glass.
0: You could do that as you well. Know? Well, and you can do that to taste, which is kind of nice. Now, here's the other thing. If you are a listener of this podcast and are an advanced home brewer, I would suspect you have a keg. And if you have a keg, this process becomes so much easier. So much easier. Because all you have to do is take your finished cider, rack it into your keg, add a... a chemical called potassium sorbate or sorbostat K, then add your sugar, preferably in the form of a syrup, mix that up, and force carbonate it. Ta-da! Sweetened sparkling cider. And guess what? That's the way that almost everybody does it. The trick about potassium sorbate is it's a chemical that interferes with the ability of yeast to reproduce. And when it does that, it actually means that the yeast won't be able to restart a fermentation. Now, this is very important. Sorbostat will not stop... An active yeast fermentation. It will only prevent a yeast fermentation from restarting under normal circumstances. Now, the other problem is also sorbostat does have an issue where if you age it in the presence of ethanol and certain amounts of acid with certain sorts of bacteria, it will start to form geranol, which is a chemical that smells like geraniums. So you have to be careful. But sor- sorbostat in a keg that's sanitary. Uh, will allow you to do this super easy. If you're going to do, if you really want to hit that mythical, magical thing of sweet cider that's well carbonated, it's the way to do it. I don't even mess around trying to do it in the bottles that way. Bottles are are great for still ciders, for dry ciders, for for anything else. I do not try and do a sweet sparkling cider in in the bottle.
1: And you know what? And I just, you know, sparkling is, not, not really an issue. At least hasn't been for me. But sweet is just not what I want. I don't have any desire to make a sweet cider, so that has never been an issue for me. Uh, in terms of sparkling, I've had no problem carbonating in bottles, just the same way I do with beer.
0: That's, uh, that's your, your sweet cider. That's your keg cider. That's your sparkling cider. That's in the package. Yeah. You know, like I said, it takes about a month for me to get a cider uh, turned around. Now, of course, there are other things that you can do. One of the other things that's happened with the rise of craft ciders, we're seeing a lot of people dry hop their ciders. I'm not a huge fan of this. I don't think I've ever had one of those that's made me happy. They're all just kind of been me. You know, I, I had one from
1: Wildcraft and it was darn good, but not good enough to make me think I wanted to do it myself.
0: The other things you'll see is people adding uh, fruit puree to their ciders. Uh, do that just like a secondary addition, let it ferment out. Uh, obviously you can also do some other fun stuff like adding pears and grapes and any of the other, any of the other Members of that same rose family that apples belong to, like hawthorns and quinces and all that sort of stuff, will make great additions to a cider as well. Just put them in at the time of juicing and go for it. If you can actually find cider pears, you can make a perry. But good luck. I don't think anybody has those. (laughs)
1: I've made a parry out of just my normal eating pears on my pear tree. Uh,
0: yes, but the, but the, but the people who are fanatics about this will tell you, you didn't make a parry, you made a pear of cider. Okay. That, I, I'll, I'll go with that. That is our real quick short lesson in how to make cider. It's super easy. Like I said, go out there, buy, uh, buy a book, uh, everything hard cider making by the very dashingly handsome and intelligent Drew Beecham. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Okay. I may have to do that.
0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of the Brew Files, and we hope that you enjoyed this exploration of cider making. We know there are lots of questions and other things that need to be answered. So, if you have questions, just you know, send us an email to that vein. Remember that if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, recipes, questions, etc., etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew or Drew at experimentalbrew You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, on just about every homebrew form known to mankind and some only known to intelligent dolphins. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation funding the fight and care of pediatric cancer. So until next time, Remember to always brew wacky or brew experimentally, and the brew is out there.
1: This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Get ready. This year's Learn to Homebrew Day is going to be a smash. Smash. Join the celebration on Saturday, November 4th by brewing a recommended smash beer. These recipes use a single malt and single hop and are perfect for experienced and beginning homebrewers. For the official Learn to Homebrew Day recipes, brewing tutorials, and a free brewing book, visit homebrewersassociation.org experimental. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for event and book offer details.